Hi, it's Michael Senoff with Michael Senoff's HardToFindSeminars.com. The title of this interview is called Five Simple Changes to Make Today That Will Prevent Heart Disease, Diabetes, and Cancer Tomorrow. It's an interview with world-renowned dietitian Jeff Novick. According to Jeff Novick, famous dietitian, author, and health expert, people in the United States spend way too much time and energy hyping early detection as a way to cure disease when the kind of care does nothing to reduce the risk for disease. It just lets you know you have it sooner. However, there are five simple lifestyle choices recommended by the World Health Organization that will significantly change your life by reducing your chance for heart disease and diabetes by up to 80% and cancer by 40%. And in this audio interview, you'll hear all about them. You'll also hear why you won't be able to believe the results one grocery store got when they rated the nutrition of their foods, the real reason most and more children have health problems today. You'll learn why Jeff is never surprised when someone falls off a diet and how the United States is a society gearing itself up for failure on this issue. You'll learn what Jeff considers the best and most important piece of exercise equipment and simple ways to make the most of it. You'll learn the secret ways thin people stay thin year after year. Find out how they burn 300 calories a day without even trying. You'll truly understand what a healthy diet means and why glutton-free foods may not be the healthiest option after all. You'll learn the secrets to living a longer life. A surprising common denominator was found among the nations with the longest lifespans. According to Jeff, the United States is well aware it has a problem. With 67% of Americans not just overweight, but obese, it's time to stop pointing fingers and start doing something. But he says, don't expect a miracle overnight. In fact, we can't expect to see a difference today or even tomorrow. But if we don't start taking steps in the right direction, we will never see a difference. And in this audio interview, you'll hear all about how to get going. Hi, this is Chris Costello, and I've teamed up with Michael Senoff to bring you the world's best wellness-related interviews. So if you know anyone struggling with their weight, with cancer, diabetes, ADHD, autism, heart disease, or other health challenges, please send them to michaelsenoffshardtofindseminars.com. Well, we're going to just cover a whole lot of subjects because we happen to know that you know a lot about a whole lot of subjects when it comes to health and getting healthy. One of the things we noticed recently were the Senate hearings in Washington regarding the use of integrative care to keep people healthy. That's what they call it. And the physicians there spoke about preventative care. And for our listeners out there, Jeff, can you kind of tell us what do they mean by that? Well, to be honest with you, I don't know. But what I do know is it's not what it has to be. In other words, we often hear lip service to preventative care but it never really truly is preventative care. That's no longer what they're talking about. You know, there's several levels of prevention, and the most important level of prevention that you talk about, I talk about, probably most of your guests talk about, is called primary prevention. And basically, that consists of education. You know, like maybe we'll do some of that today. You know, we we're trying to educate people and individuals on how to better take care of themselves so they truly prevent the occurrence of, you know, the diseases that we can prevent. So in other words, primary care is teaching you to live in a way so you never develop diabetes or heart disease 
or we teach you how to live in a way that you greatly reduce your chances of ever getting it. But that's not what anybody's talking about. What they're talking about is early intervention, which used to be another phase of prevention, but that now has become primary prevention. But it's not truly primary prevention, and it's not truly prevention. All that is is just getting you into the medical system sooner, which doesn't guarantee you any healthier life or healthier outcomes. It just means you become part of the system much sooner. So for me to go in and have earlier interventions or screenings doesn't in any way do anything to teach me how to live a healthier life or how to prevent or reduce my risk for the disease. It just lets me know sooner when I have it. We get huddled into the system, and while I'm not the one to go further into this next area, I know you've had other guests, but getting into the system in and of itself can be a problem because many times, you know, medical tests have errors, and many times we're scared into taking actions which may not be necessary. And as some recent studies have shown, aggressive medical therapy can actually be counterproductive as was shown in some recent studies on diabetes and heart disease, but those who were aggressively treated actually had higher death rates. So it may not be a system we want to be getting into sooner. What we really want is primary prevention. But the problem with primary prevention, if it's truly done correctly, is unfortunately there isn't a lot of money or profit in it. You know, I don't really have much to sell you. I don't have any products, pills, potions, or machinery, gadgets, tests, or anything like that. What I'm trying to do is encourage you to eat healthy, which if you did it the way I wanted you to, would probably dramatically reduce your costs, your food costs, and simplify them. And I want you to be a little bit active. And even to do that, you wouldn't need any fancy systems, equipment, gyms. You know, you wouldn't have to spend thousands of dollars. Basically, you would need a good pair of walking shoes. So true primary prevention is really keeping yourself out of the system. And what these discussions are over are really early intervention and screenings. Well, one of the things I heard him talking about in the hearings on integrative care, they started talking about food. Right now we're marketing to these children all sorts of foods that basically are helping create this crisis that we have. And I think a lot of the problem with this generation, they don't even know what real food is. I mean, a lot of people listening out there, Jeff, you know, what is whole food? What are you talking about? I agree with you that when we hear them use those terms, you know, our ears perk up and we get excited. But just like with primary prevention, it's the same thing. You know, they're not talking about what you and I are talking about. They're talking about, you know, new and improved Kellogg's cornflakes. They're not talking about new real food. I mean, if you look at the guidelines that were recently created for snack food in schools, they're terrible. I gave some examples of pure junk food that could pass these guidelines. So you have to look at who's being put in charge of helping create these agendas and guidelines and what their vested interests are. Because many times the food companies are very involved, and, you know, they're not looking to eliminate themselves. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about, because this is public, and it was all over the news a while ago. And to me, it kind of puts the whole picture in perspective. About a year and a half ago, a big supermarket chain in the Northeast called Hannaford Brothers wanted to come out with a system to help their shoppers figure out easily which foods were the healthiest and which foods weren't. So they created a three-star rating system 
and they went through their warehouse and they raided 28,800 foods. Not everything, but a huge portion of the food in their supermarket. And they gave all the foods either zero stars, one stars, two stars, or three stars. And you got stars based on just general guidelines. If you had more fiber, whole grains, vitamins, minerals. And you got less stars if you had more fat, saturated fat, cholesterol, salt, and sugar. So one star was okay, two stars was a little better, and three was even a little better. So then they went through the supermarket, rated most of their foods, 28,800 of them. And when they were done, only 24% of the food in the supermarket was able to get at least one star. When they came out with this, they came out with this as good news. You know, they came out with all these numbers, and basically they were saying that, you know, now you could come here and, you know, we'll help you pick out the good foods. You could just look. It was like, you know, the three-star system. And I said, this is insane. Now, the produce section did real well. They said that 94% of the food in the produce section got at least one star. I said, my God, I wonder what they're selling in the produce section that only 94% or 96 or 94% got one star. Shouldn't all the produce get three stars? I mean, in reality, that's because, as we know, they do sell other things in the produce section. But what that means is when you walk out of the produce section and you go into the rest of the supermarket, 76% of the food they're selling can't even qualify for one star, which was the lowest rating. Could you imagine if we use three stars or if we use, like, my system of what a healthy food is? We have failed the star system, and it's continually getting worse. And, you know, let's face it, for years, you know, we had Healthy Guidelines 2000, which we didn't make, and now there's Healthy Guidelines 2010, which we're not going to make. According to the latest numbers, we're no longer an overweight nation. We're approximately 67% of us are considered overweight. We're now an obese nation because of that 67 68%, most of the people now are obese and not overweight, and that just happened. So we're not getting any better. We're getting worse, and it's also dramatically affecting the children. I recently wrote up an article that appeared in the Journal of the American Dietetic Association where they surveyed morning television to see what percentage of it was geared to children on children's shows on Saturday morning, and what percent of those commercials and TV shows were promoting junk food, fast food, and, you know, high sugar, high fat, high salt foods. And they gave the analysis, and it was a high amount. But the most striking thing is 10 years ago they did a similar survey, and as a result many of the food companies got together and said they were going to lessen that amount. It almost doubled. In a lot of European countries, it's actually illegal to market to kids like that, I believe. Well, it should be, because children don't have the critical thinking skills to make the decisions that you and I might or their parents, yet it's being marketed to them and being sold in ways that's very effective. I was involved in a recent discussion amongst my professional colleagues. I think the topic was about Oprah and how she had recently failed again on a diet, and someone was making a comment on how diets don't work and how we have to get away from this mentality because after so many years, you know, it's now proven, you know, and she was an example. My response was, how could they work? I mean, understanding that the principle of diets in general has some issues, and we're not really talking about a diet. We're talking about complete lifestyle changes. But even when we're talking about that, 
my response is still, why should we be surprised they all fail? Look at the peer pressure. I said, this is the equivalent of taking like an alcoholic who has undergone, you know, let's say a 30-day program and gotten his life cleaned up and he's gotten sober and we send him out in the world and we tell him, okay, now do your best not to drink anymore. Yet we put him into a world that's like a happy hour going on nonstop. And he's the only one in it who's trying to stay sober. And he's surrounded by people having fun, giving out drinks, you know, promoting drinking. And there's all jingles and bells and whistles everywhere he turns just promoting drinking. And he's made to feel like a real outsider and outcast that he's not participating. How successful can we expect him to be? And then we say, oh, he failed. Then we put him back in for 30 days and we send him out. And after four or five times, we say, you see, treatment doesn't work. How could it work? We don't have a society anymore that encourages healthy living and healthy lifestyle. And if we're going to be successful, we're going to have to approach it in a way similar to smoking, where we change the whole culture, where smoking just became uncool. You know, it used to be cool to smoke. You know, all the movies, all the movie stars, all the advertising. Now it's uncool. I mean, you're the outcast if you light up in many situations. And eventually, we're going to have to do that with food. So where you and I are no longer the outcast because we want to take care of ourselves and eat healthy. Let me give you some results of studies they've done. The World Health Organization, there's an ongoing study called the EPIC in Europe. And in that study, and the World Health Organization has identified four or five what they call healthy lifestyle behaviors. And they're very general. One of them is being at your healthy weight, which is the BMI of 18 and a half to 25, eating at least three to five servings of fruits and vegetables a day, engaging in at least 30 minutes of activity a day, not smoking, and moderate drinking or no drinking. Okay, so they've identified those five. Then they went out and they interviewed 150,000 Americans to ask, how many of you engage in these lifestyle behaviors? And guess what the percentage was? I'm Chris Costello, reporting from Michael Senoff's hardtofindseminars.com. Really low. <laughs> very good. It's not funny, but that's a very good guess. It was 4%. There is no set formal exercise or activity someone has to do. And if you look at many of the long-lived cultures, they don't even know what exercise or formal exercise is. They get their activity in their what we call activities of daily living by walking and working and climbing stairs and bending down and lifting things and just everyday activities. And, gee, you know what? They're the longest-lived populations who are able to live long with very low rates of disease. You know, that's part of that whole culture and environment. We've made it set up with this belief system that if you don't do this amount of exercise this way for this amount of time, well, you're not really exercising. That's just not true. We just had a discussion on this, and my input on what is the best piece of exercise equipment, and my answer is the human body. It's the greatest piece of exercise equipment ever invented. I enjoyed jumping jacks. Maybe not everybody can do them, but there's very simple exercises everybody can do. Brisk walking, running, jogging, sit-ups, pull-ups, jumping jacks. There's all kinds of calisthenics. For a very long time, simple exercises like calisthenics, 
and the original gymnastics before we had all the fancy equipment was designed just to keep the human body fit and didn't involve using any other equipment. Well, you know, that's the difference. They found out on this topic, you know, sometimes they say, oh, people are gifted or they have different metabolisms. And, you know, it's not really true. What they found out in some recent studies is that thinner people actually burn more of what they called NEAT, N-E-A-T, which is non-exercise activities. And basically what they found out is that throughout the day, they did more movements, even little movements, some of what they called fidgeting. Those little movements accounted for upwards of 300 calories a day. Well, when the study came out, I showed my mother and I said, you see this? You always used to yell at me for fidgeting. (laughs) Now it turns out it's scientifically proven to be helpful. But if you think about it, 300 calories a day, if the math is perfect, could be somewhere around 30 pounds a year that it can account for. So me being up and walking around right now instead of sitting in a chair makes a difference. Well, you know, I remember when I was growing up, my parents had the greatest exercise equipment ever at home that I was forced to engage in every day. I used to come home from school, and I would come into the house, and my mother would point outside the kitchen door and say, Go outside and play. (laughs) And she said, do not come home until supper's ready when I call you. And occasionally I'd come back to the door and peek in, and I wasn't even allowed to do that. She'd say, get back out and play with your friends. And that's what we did from the time we got home till dinner. We climbed trees. We chased each other. We played tag. We had cats. played football. We played hide-and-go-seek. But we were constantly moving. Today, kids are sitting in front of TVs playing video games, which in and of itself, you know, they're not getting the activity, but then in addition, while they're sitting in front of the TV or playing video games, they're also consuming extra calories because they're eating, and in addition, the calories they're consuming usually are in the form of some sort of junk food. It's like a triple whammy. And then we say, gee, I wonder why my kid's heavy. And what are some of the most difficult things that you see people struggling with when they try to switch from a processed food type diet to healthy whole foods? Well, the first thing is truly understanding what this is about. Because just like what I was saying with Hannaford Brothers, when they truly analyzed the food and to show how much of it really couldn't even qualify for basic health guidelines, that most people don't understand health food, and that is because most of the information people get is actually not true health information, but it's marketing and advertising that's disguised as health information. So no longer is like evil, evil, you know, and by evil I mean the unhealthy foods, but the unhealthy foods are now being sold to us as healthy foods. And most of them now are even being sold to us as superfoods. So, you know, I meet people all the time who we talk about eating right, and their first response is, but I already eat healthy. I use olive oil. I drink wine. I have dark chocolate. You know, I have salmon. I have cocoa powder. And they name all these things that they hear about all the time in the news and the media that are not really healthy for them, especially when they eat them all day, every day. So they don't have a concept of what truly is health food. And that's the first obstacle is really getting people to understand, A, 
what is health food, and the part that goes with that is to start really using their critical thinking skills in evaluating a lot of what they're being told. You know, I mean, if you're familiar with my lecture series, almost every single lecture is on a topic, and it's basically on that point, you know, separating information from misinformation. So what is whole food? What is the right diet? Now, that's a good question. The best foods are fresh fruits, vegetables, starchy vegetables, what I would call intact whole grains, legumes, and some nuts and seeds. And those would be what I would want to center most anybody's healthy diet around. So by starchy vegetables, are you saying the P word? Pea like a green pea or pea like potato. Potatoes are just a wonderful food, and all of the varieties, you know, I won't get into the politics of it, but last year, World Health called 2008 the year of the potato and called it a great food and one of the ones that could potentially not only solve hunger problems, but also some of the economic and nutritional problems around the world because it is such a nutrient-dense food and it's so low in calories, easily to grow, economic, and, you know, it just wins on so many categories. And here's the irony in all of this. We are given what I call short-sighted information and short-sighted conclusions. You know, it's like telling the alcoholic they should drink because they'll have fun tonight, but we don't go on and tell them about what's going to happen the next day or the next day. So, you know, they set up these short-term answers, and let me tell you what I'm talking about. I mean, when we talk about healthy living, we have to really think about what are the outcomes that we really want. And for most people, they come to two things. One is living healthy with very low rates of disease or disease-free, and the other is being able to do that for a long time. So we want long life and it to be disease-free. So then we have to ask ourselves a question. Okay, where in the world can we find such people who are already doing that? And let's find different groups of them, study them, and see what they all have in common, common denominators. Because the way I look at things, which is usually pretty logically, is doesn't that make sense? You know, if you want to achieve something, let's find groups of people who are already doing it and see the common denominators. And when we do that, we find out that all of the long-lived populations eat a plant-based diet, they're active, they don't smoke, they have healthy body weights. What's really ironic is when you look at the Okinawan centenarians, who are some of the longest-lived people on the planet, I think they have the highest rate of people over 100 per capita than anywhere else in the world. And when you look at their diet pre-1950, before Western influence, 69% of their calories was potatoes. Then you go and you look at the Chinese centenarians, and 55% of their calories were potatoes. We're not only are we not number one, we're not in the top five, we're not in the top ten, we're not even in the top 15. We're somewhere around 20-ish, so we're not the longest lived. The one food that's common in all long-lived populations, now it doesn't mean that this is what they eat the most of, but it is the common denominator in all long-lived populations, the food is beans. Beans is the common denominator. You also find lots of whole grains. You also find lots of starchy vegetables and vegetables. You find fruits. You find some nuts and seeds on occasion. You know, most of them also include small amounts of animal products. You see what's locally available and usually what's the result of necessity, but it's usually a small part of their diet. 
when you look at the Okinawans and you take the potatoes and you add in the whole grains, the legumes and the fruits, you're looking at over 90% of the calories that come from plants. When you look at the Chinese centenarians, you see the exact same thing. About 90% or just over 90% come from plants. So that is the common denominator, is plant foods. For more interviews on health, mind, body, and spirit, go to michaelsenoffshardtofindseminars.com. And eating this way does make a huge difference in health, is that right? If you consume them in the right form, you know, and that's where the confusion is. You know, I'll say to somebody, you know, so yes, you should eat intact whole grains. And they say, is whole wheat acceptable? And I'll say yes. And they'll say, oh, good, because I love bread. I'll say, that's not an intact whole grain. And it usually also contains lots of fat and salt and sugar and sometimes the wrong fats. And they said, you know, and they're like, I thought bread was a whole grain. I mean, I'm getting some national brands, whole wheat variety. And it's because they just don't realize that. And, and I say, well, actually, the true intact whole grain when it comes to wheat is called a wheat berry. And it's just amazing to me how few people know what a wheat berry is. And they look at me and I go, this is whole wheat. This is a wheat berry. And they just shake their heads and walk away going, God, is he weird. If you were able to find this rare wheat berry, and of course that would be difficult, then you prepare it the exact same way you would a kernel of rice or any other intact whole grain, you know, like oats or barley or quinoa, you know, a one to two ratio with water. And you bring the water to boil and cook it for, you know, whole wheat berry might be about 20, 30 minutes. So, and then you have wheat berries, and people make wheat berry salads. Some people eat it just like they would rice or any other whole grain. But, you know, the point is that people think wheat bread is a whole grain. And we've been talking with a lot of physicians, too, that are talking about, you know, a lot of people have allergies to wheat. It's fairly common. That's an issue. But here's the problem with that. If I just may say, and that's why that's important, because, boy, do I hear a lot of that today. Well, I'm gluten insensitive. Well, you know, that's possible. There's some evidence that maybe one in 120 people are gluten insensitive. So it's not that it's rare, and many people may be. So, I mean, the gluten issue is an important issue because it's an example of what's happening out there. See, we're all getting distracted by these issues that may have some relevance, but they're not the main issue. So, you know, the incidence of gluten sensitivity is said to be somewhere maybe around 1 in 120. So it's not rare, so it may be common and people may be sensitive to gluten. But gluten sensitivity and whether you avoid gluten or not is not responsible for the obesity, metabolic syndrome, diabetes, heart disease, and cancer epidemics that we're seeing and problems. But here's the real problem. You can now go to the grocery store or the health food store and see sections and aisles of gluten-free products. And they may be gluten-free, but many of them are still junk food. So people are now eating junk food that's just gluten-free, but in the end, it still may be high in calories, high in fat, high in salt, high in sugar, and not high in nutrients. So again, you know, it's a distraction. Remember those five things I mentioned earlier, the no smoking, the weight, the exercise, the fruits and veggies, and the alcohol? The World Health says those five alone, and I believe this is a conservative estimate, can reduce 80% of the cardiovascular disease and diabetes and 40% of the cancers. Those five things. 
Do you see this as being an attainable shift? I think it's possible, but the companies are only going to make the shift if there's a benefit in it for them because these companies, and I'm not saying this in a negative way, anybody who's in business is in business to make money, are only going to pursue those avenues if there's profit in it for them. And, you know, right now we have two problems, and one is most people are not buying those foods. Remember, in that study I showed you, only 4% of the population said they were engaging in those five healthy lifestyle behaviors. They also studied the nurses' health study and the physicians' health study. And out of physicians and nurses, the numbers were no better. Only about 4% were following the healthy lifestyle. So a company is not going to invest all its energies into producing products that only 4% of the population is going to buy, if even that amount. So I think it's possible, but you see, we need a whole shift. Now, people say, well, is it really possible? Well, there's another great example that it is possible, and it also was done by the World Health Organization, and it's called the North Karelia Project. And what happened is about 30 years ago, a young physician came out of medical school, and specialty in public health, I forget his name offhand, he was determined to show that you could make a difference and change a community. And he picked North Karelia because it had one of the highest rates of heart disease. And he went into the community and tried to make a difference, like what we're talking about. And he realized he was going to have to get everybody involved. And for the first few years, there was lots of resistance because he was trying to get the schools involved, the industries involved, community health, doctors, farmers, everybody. He knew there was no way you could just do it by getting one involved. So he tried to get the whole community involved, and it took some time. But eventually, he made progress, and 25 years later, it's a 25-year study, he was able to reduce the death rate from cardiovascular disease, diabetes, stroke, somewhere around, I think it was 70 to 80 percent. He dropped it dramatically from cancer, and lifespan in both men and women went up about seven or eight years. So it can be done. Yeah, the World Health is now using that project as an example and trying it in three other communities right now. Now, what did he do? He got everybody involved, you know, so they no longer use butter and they cut out some of the fat. They changed the types of food the farmers were growing. I read in one of the interviews he was saying it was really hard to get one of the farmers to move away. I forget what he was producing, but it was not the healthiest food until he had a heart attack. And then once he had a heart attack, he switched to where he changed his product to one that was more healthier. So it's a very famous project, and if you Google the North Karelia Project in World Health, you find lots of information. I wrote an article on it that's on my website, too, a few years ago. But I just use it to show that you can make a difference, but it's going to take everybody. See, right now we have people just pointing fingers. You know, the food industry says, well, it's because we don't get enough exercise. You know, and other people say, well, you know, maybe we get enough exercise, but, you know, it's the foods you eat. We want kids to walk and have safe food in school, but then they come home to junk food. So it's like everybody's pointing fingers. We just have to stop and just say, okay, we all contributed. doesn't matter how much or what percent we all contributed. It's time to change direction. We all have to start doing the right thing because it's the right thing to do. 
And you know what? Maybe it'll take us 10 years. Maybe it'll take us 15. Maybe it'll take us 20. But you ever see that movie, We Are Marshall or Marshall? It's about the college football team. They lost the whole team in an airplane crash. The next year, they got a new coach, and he wanted to start the program up again. And they said to him, do you really think you can get a program together and make an impact? And he says, no. He says, but in 10 or 20 years we can, but we can't get there if we don't start here. So he knew he couldn't win. He knew he didn't have any players. He knew it was going to be tough for the first few years. But he knew if he didn't start moving in that direction, they could never get to where they wanted to be. And eventually they did, you know, again, win some championships. So that's what I'm saying. You know, we're not going to change the world today. We're not going to change it tomorrow. But if we want to get to a point where we properly educate people and we see our children out healthy again and running around where it's safe for them to be outside and to be eating right and companies promoting healthy foods, yeah, it's not going to happen tomorrow, next week, or next year. But we have to start moving in the direction so that maybe in 10 years or 15 years, we're well on our way to see that happen. I make two observations about the health of our people today from my work over the last 20 years or so. Is One is that most people are much sicker than they think they are. And two is most people can get a whole lot better than they think they can. And people just have no idea of the power of food, even amongst the professionals. You know, when I see professionals come in to observe the programs I work with, even leading cardiologists, dietitians, they come in and they watch for a week or two, and they see people's lives literally changed. Cholesterol drops, blood sugar drops, blood pressure drops. That just is unheard of to them. And in 10 days, 7 days, 14 days, they just said, I had no idea that this could happen. They just did not know what was possible if we provide the human body with what it needs in its best form. We want to thank you so much for joining us on hardtofindseminars.com. And do they get pretty inspired by that experience? Well, most of the time they do. You know, it impacts them, and they try to do what they can. So there's, like, lots of little of these cells, I call them, all over the place trying to do good. And hopefully, eventually, you know, we'll be able to get enough of us where we'll be able to make that shift where things will change on a bigger scale. But, yes... You've got to get the health professionals seeing what's possible. They don't know. You have to get people seeing what's possible. They don't know. And a lot of them are afraid of the change because they think their quality of life will go down. Maybe they think they're going to give up something. But what people don't realize, which you realize, is when you make the change, you don't lose anything in life. You now get, like, life squared. <laughs> you know, right. Life becomes so much better and easier. Jeff, do you have a sense of hope regarding the future for our kids, or what's your take on that? Well, I do, because otherwise, why would I do what I do? So I do, and I think, you know, the good things about kids is they're sharp and they're intuitive. And one of the things I've learned working with them is when you show them the truth and the reality, you know, like in some classes I've had with kids, one of the things... I like to show them is take them to the grocery store and the health food store and show them how deceptive food products are. You know the story where something may say fat-free and it's really full of fat or no sugar added and it's full of sugars. That gets their attention. Kids don't like to be lied to. That opens their eyes. You know, kids want to feel good. 
They really do. Being overweight, not being able to bend down and tie your shoes, not being able to walk distances without becoming exhausted, not being able to run around and appreciate the energy you have, they don't like that. So when you show them the path and that there is hope, they respond pretty quickly. And the kids seem to respond better than adults. But kids need to be environments where this is supported. I remember one time during a kid's program, a parent came over to me and said, my God, I've never seen my son enjoy just a bowl of fruit and vegetables like he is right now. And I said, do you ever make them available to him? And the parent <laughs> frowned and said, uh, no. I said, well, how can he learn to enjoy them? You know, there is no one food that you must eat. You know, I recently, to explain how simple this is, wrote up some recipes, you know, that had like three ingredients or five ingredients and how inexpensive, simply you could prepare them and how they would meet every nutritional need. And someone responded that because my recipe had tomatoes in it, well, it would never work for me because I don't like tomatoes. Okay, <laughs> leave out the tomato. You know, put corn in. It's not going to be that much different. You know, put red pepper in. Whatever you want in. There is no one food. If you don't like potato, maybe you like sweet potato. If you don't like corn, you know, if you don't like broccoli, maybe you like carrots. Vegetables are power pack. And that's why I don't like getting into that, you know, broccoli is the best vegetable or blueberries. Eat a variety of berries or find the two or three that you like. Eat a variety of vegetables. Find the two or three that you like. And if you don't like one, don't eat it. You know, sometimes some of my clients will come, well, you don't understand. I only like two vegetables. I can never do this. And I said, really, what two vegetables? And they say, carrots and peas. I say, great. I want you to eat carrots and peas every day with every meal. I go, yeah, just eat carrots and peas every day with every meal. And you know what? Every now and then, try one other. Just try one. And if you don't like it, you don't have to eat it. But, you know, we also have the flip side. People are so funny. And I don't think they realize it, that, you know, the irony in what they're saying but somebody said to me, this is an example of a conversation that's happened many times. They said, well, I can never do this because I love salt, and you're basically asking me to cut salt out. I said, well, in your situation, it's probably a good idea. Where do you use salt? They go, oh, I put salt on everything. I salt this, I salt this, I salt that. Without the salt, nothing would taste good. So I said, well, do you use any other spices? No, I only use salt. I put it on everything. I said, okay, well, have you tried, and I'll give them another spice, like, let's say Mrs. Das table blend. I said, have you tried this? And they said, yeah, it's pretty good. I could use it. I said, okay, so there we go. And they say, well, what else do you want me to use? I said, what do you mean, what else? They said, well, is that it? I said, okay, wait a minute. You just told me you used salt on everything. <laughs> one product on everything. I'm giving you another one product. Now you want a variety. It's really simple. People don't realize what they're doing or saying. And one time a customer came up to me and he said, I wanted to eat stone crabs on occasion. Could I do that? And I said, you know, the reality is you could probably get away with eating anything you want on occasion if it's truly on occasion. And he said, good, because that's my favorite food in the world, stone crab. And I said, okay, whatever. So he walks away, and five minutes later he comes back up to me and goes, you know what, I have another question for you. What would you recommend I put on them? Because by themselves, they have no flavor. 
Do you see the irony in what he just said? Yeah. In other words, his favorite food in the world has no flavor to him. You like yeah. the mayonnaise sauce and the mustard sauce and everything? Right. It's just the irony that people don't really realize what we've gotten into as far as food and health. Now, Jeff, if people want to get a hold of you or find out more information about what you're doing, can you tell them your website? Yes, my website is www.jeffnovick.com, and there's an active support forum there, and there's a blog, a newsletter, and there's also an event schedule so you can see all my speaking events around the country and where I am and what I'm doing. Great. So what's next for Jeff Novick? More of the same, but fortunately for me, the same is good, and hopefully we'll be able to help a few people. You know, I continue to work with Dr. John McDougall and the McDougall program out in California. We just had an advanced weekend a few weeks ago that in spite of the economy and what's going on, it was the largest attended one yet. It was an incredible weekend of three days filled with incredible food and lots of great information. Dr. Campbell was there. Dr. Popper was there. Dr. Nedley was talking about food and depression and mental performance. So it was an incredible weekend. So I'm out there once a month working with Dr. McDougall. He has a 10-day live-in program, a five-day program, and a three-day advanced weekends throughout the year. So that's a great place if you want to come and spend time with me where we can sit around and have a great time. The 10-day program is a live-in residential program medically supervised where Dr. McDougall becomes your doctor and over the 10 days what I do is I provide about five or six lectures throughout the week. I have small group sessions with the participants while they're there and I spend most of the day with them, you know, sharing meals and discussing little one-on-one -on -one talks or little group discussions over their personal issues and needs. Dr. McDougall sees everybody formally at least three times during the week, lectures every morning for two hours, and is available also throughout the week. And we have three huge, delicious buffets of food a day, along with food available. We have great chefs from the area come in, and we have cooking schools every day. And it's attached to a spa, so we have exercise classes throughout the day. It's just a wonderful 10-day experience. And because we're located in such an incredible area, we even go on field trips. We go out to Bodega Bay. We go up to the Redwood Forest. And in addition, to help people learn how to apply this in the real world, we take supervised trips to a local grocery store and also to the local health food store. And we also go to several restaurants in the neighborhood, a Chinese restaurant, a Thai restaurant. So not only does everybody get immersed in the program, we also venture out into the real world to show people how you could actually do this. It's open to anybody. Many who come do have health issues that they've been trying for long term unsuccessfully to resolve, so they'll come there. Some have weight issues. Some come because they don't ever want to get health issues. They want to learn how to prevent them all. A great program. Dr. Doug Lyle is the psychologist on staff and is available throughout the week and gives several lectures throughout the week on the whole behavioral change and psychology of changing behavior and dealing with the real world. So it really is the total picture. So right on the front of my website is a link and a little video of the 10-day program, and there's links to Dr. McDougall's site. So people go to Dr. McDougall's site at Dr. McDougall's website at Dr. 
mcdougall.com. He has a discussion board, and in the discussion board, there is a forum that I host where I personally answer everybody's question. And in the last year, it's been one of the most active forums. I think I've had over 1,000 posts there or questions answered in the past year. We look forward to talking with you again soon. That's the end of our interview, and I hope you've enjoyed it. For more great health-related interviews, go to Michael Senoff's hardtofindseminars.com.